It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. When you lose someone, well-meaning people give you books full of supposedly uplifting platitudes. Time heals all wounds. There is a purpose to this. You will find closure. But as a non-religious baby boomer, Carla Malden says she found them useless. She writes, the truth is no matter who is sick, the sickness is happening to more than the patient. Her book describing her experience of dealing with her husband's cancer and his ultimate death has been described as sacred, terrifying, funny, and heartbreaking. I would agree with that description. I couldn't put it down. And today we'll be exploring the journey with our guest, Carla Malden. Carla Malden has been a screenwriter and published author. She began her career as the assistant to renowned director Elia Kazan. With her husband and screenwriting partner, Lawrence Starkman, she co-wrote many screenplays and produced and wrote several award-winning short films. Along with her father, Academy Award-winning actor Carl Malden, she co-authored his critically acclaimed memoir, When Do I Start? Her most recent book is After Image, a broken-hearted memoir of a charmed life. Join us for the next hour as we explore the zigzagging emotions of living with a loved one who is battling a life-threatening illness as well as moving into widowhood with our guest, Carla Malden. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Carla, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Justine. It's such a pleasure to have you here. And I really do mean what I said. I, I couldn't put the book down. You are an extraordinary writer. Thank you very much. Well, you just took me right through the year-long process of Lawrence's cancer, battling cancer, standing there side by side with him and your daughter. And then the year after, in, in, in your grieving process, which... I'm sure just still goes on and on uh, as we discover new things about our former partner and our life and our new life. So let's let's go back, if you don't mind, to that time when he was first diagnosed. So can you tell us about that moment in time? Well, the first line of my book is, Mrs. Starkman said the doctor, sit down. And that with that sentence, I was booted down a rabbit hole into a surreal world that I never thought I would have to experience, that I never suspected would be part of my life. And I liken it in Afterimage to being strapped onto a roller coaster that you never bought a ticket for. And that's very much what it's like. You just can do nothing but hold on. And there are those weeks where you are plummeting and those weeks where you feel hopeful and, and things are on the rise. And um, it's 
a process of learning an entirely new language, the language of medicine, and feeling like you have to inform yourself sometimes to the point of mania. I think that's something maybe specific to our generation, that you think that knowledge is power. So you read and you Google and you do all those things that are a little bit helpful, but mostly crazy-making. And you just get up in the morning and, and keep going. And I look back on that time now and think, how did I ever do that? But you don't feel that in the moment. You're just doing what you have to do. Well, that's true. You, you, and you write about that. You just put one foot after another. How was Lawrence with the diagnosis? What was his response? I would say, I mean, obviously the predictable ones. On top of that, he had enormous guilt, which was specific to his particular cancer, which was colon cancer. And he had had a history of ulcerative colitis that is sort of immaterial to the overall story. But it it, it does pertain to his personal reaction, which was enormous guilt because he had missed a colonoscopy. That's neither here nor there, though that does play into my sort of circle of hell in that there's uncertainty there. I will never know if he had had that test a couple of years earlier, if we would have been able to arrest the, the cancer, though his was so particularly vicious that maybe not. So uncertainty is a horrible thing to have to battle. But I would say that his reaction basically was terror, predictably enough, and, and guilt, and a feeling, he, he said often, this is going to be a blip in the road, and life is going to be better and sweeter. And there is that um, part of that relationship where you're in worry and fear, he's more or less in pain and dealing with his body, and there's, there's not a lot of communication. I mean, there's a sense of protectiveness, isn't there, that's going on there? I think we each had that for the other. And as you mentioned in your lovely introduction, we were also writing partners, so we had a very sort of sixth sense kind of symbiotic relationship in a lot of aspects of our relationship. Um, And this was another really kind of the ultimate example of that. I think we gave each other the room to be terrified and picked up the slack for the other one. I, of course, have guilt about that now. I had no business for him to be worrying about me. (laughs) But that's the way it played out, you know. We, We tried to be in different phases of that roller coaster ride for one another. And when you say you wrote together, I mean, you were together for 20 years, I believe. We were married for 24 years. We lived together five years before that. We were high school sweethearts. We, we grew up together. And when you were together, you were together in both your marriage, your love relationship, but also your work. So we that kind of I doubles like, I, everything, exactly doesn't it? That's exactly right. We were, I say there's an old uh, maxim, you should be married. Uh, the secret to a happy marriage is to be married for better, for worse, but not for lunch. Well, we were the exception to that. We were 24 hours a day, many, many, many days. Right. So that, that, then that doubles in the widowhood part once he's gone. Yes. Every piece of the jigsaw puzzle was taken out. Not just one, but every piece of my jigsaw puzzle was thrown to the floor. Right, right. So let's, let's go back to the medical scene. What happened when you're all optimistic and then there's a reoccurrence? Everything's going well and then there's a reoccurrence. So what, what do you do in that situation? Yes, you're right. We, he went through um, six months of chemotherapy like the poster boy for chemo. It was, it was really 
not as bad as we had feared. And then um, he had a scan that was supposedly clean, but started suffering some pain. And it took them a month of trying all kinds of things, none of which worked, to scan him again, and they discovered the recurrence. And uh, that, that was really the bottom dropping out. Because at that point, he, unlike the first go-round, where we discovered he was sick, but he was a normal person, at that point, he was in excruciating pain. And it, they never, from then on, were able to get a handle on it. And he lasted three months. Did you, you describe the, the angel nurses in the chemo. I, I'd love for you to share that with our listeners. Yes, I, I do believe that of all the personnel we encountered, of course, the doctors are, are magnificent. And I do a thing in, in the book of calling them by kind of nicknames because I say oncology man, because you do sort of do this to these people who swarm into your life unexpectedly. You project these labels onto them as though they're just going to come in and perform a role. He's going to be the superhero doctor, like oncology man, and then he'll leave, you know? Um, but the nurses are really individuals to you. And I think they're a special breed of angel. I mean, you, you are so terrified when you go in there, particularly the first couple of times. And they, you know, they're taking care of, I don't know how many people at once and giving each and every one of them individualized attention. It's a, a really unsung group of heroes. And, uh, yeah, so you call them the angels, and I really could relate to that. And, and then you called a scary surgeon lady. Yes. You called her scary surgeon. She was, but you really liked her. You liked her matter-of-factness. Yes. Of, she was kind of like Sandra Oh, I guess, on, <laughs> on, on Grey's Anatomy or something. <laughs> you know, Very right? apt comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and th that's another example of these nicknames that I gave the doctors. And, yes, she was really scary. She was very blunt. I think the first time we sat in her office, um, my husband started a sentence by saying, well, my wife is afraid, and she, he didn't even get a chance to finish it. She interrupted him, as I say in the book, and said, she's afraid you're going to die. And that she was, she was a cut-to-the-chase kind of woman. But that's, she cuts people open for a living. You know, that's, that's what she had to do. So, yes, that, that's, you know, they were each very distinct personalities. I thought it was very interesting that when he was ready to, uh, to w talk about hospice care towards the end, she was the one who came in and talked to you. She talked to me about her own father, and suddenly, for the first time in... I guess it was about 10 months that we'd been dealing with her off and on. She became human. She told me about what they went through with her father when he was dying and, and you know, the wonderful hospice care that he had received. As it turns out, Lawrence only had hospice care for literally a number of hours. Right. Well, is it, it is interesting when, when it all becomes humanized then because that whole medical scene can feel dishumanized. Very dehumanizing. Yes, yes I think it really can. And I was, I spent so much time in the hospital that I sort of be almost, I was going to say became one of the nurses. That's not fair at all. But they let me go into the nurse's lounge. I mean, I, and they were really lovely. The nurses are really people who run the hospital, you know. Right. Thank goodness for them. And I know, I know you describe some point about going out of the hospital room and going into the sunlight. And that's such a shock, isn't it? It's such a shock that the world is still turning on its axis when your personal world is not. It just doesn't 
compute. It makes no sense at all that the world should be carrying on. And yet, of course, you know intellectually, rationally that it is, but on a visceral level, it makes no sense. Exactly. Carla, I would love for you to share a little bit of your writing near the beginning of your book. This is, as you say, at the beginning of After Image, when I'm just offering to the reader a little bit of what they might expect in the pages that follow. No matter how hard I try to pretend otherwise, no matter how I strive to mold the events of the past year into something that made some sense, this was not art. This was life. There will be no revelations in these pages, no blinding insights, just flashes of clarity about pain and fight and love that on a good day make this point in my life almost bearable. It is a weird through-the-looking-glass starting point, dismally unwelcome, where hopes and dreams and the whole concept of the future are distorted at best, obliterated at worst. I will say it right now from the start that the most I will be able to offer is this. For some inexplicable reason, at once miraculous and diabolical, the heart keeps beating even when it is irreparably broken. I'm here with Carla Malden. She's the author of After Image, a broken-hearted memoir of a charmed life. And if you'd like to check out her website, you can go to carlamalden.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Carla Malden, and we're talking about After Image, uh, a book that she wrote, and a life that she has lived through the cancer of her former husband, Lawrence Starkman. Carla, the, how did you get the title of the book, After Image? What did, where did that come from? Well, an After Image is actually a scientific phenomenon. It's the kind of thing that when you stare at the sun and then you look away and close your eyes, you see an after image, a sort of halo or aura. Or if you're in a dark room and you're staring at a TV set and you look off to the side, you see that kind of ghostly after image. And so it's also um, part of the process that allows us to see motion when we go to the movies because we're really just seeing a series of still pictures, of course, as film, and our mind puts them together and forms it into motion. And that part of that phenomenon is an afterimage. And my husband was a filmmaker, so I liked that element of it. But mostly I'm talking, obviously, about an emotional afterimage, 
that kind of ghostly aura that remains. You know rationally that the person is gone, and yet they feel so present, almost like a phantom limb. That's the afterimage I'm talking about, that, that what remains behind feels so real. I, I think you use in your book that some phrase about, I, I have the habit of Lawrence in some way. Can you speak about that? Yes, exactly that. And that's the afterimage. It's, it's taking that piece of the puzzle out that I talked about earlier and still trying to make things fit. It's a habit. Everything I did was in relation to him. So I really learned, and this is a little bit of what the second half of the book is about, how to, I don't like the word reinvent. I, I think to me that feels like Madonna reinventing herself every year, but rewrite my life, rewrite the ending I thought my life was going to have, not that I'm anywhere near the end, but rewrite that whole second half. And, and um, without, it's like breaking a habit. How am I going to do this without him? How am I going to have raise my child? How am I ultimately going to have grandchildren without him? All those really happy things that you think about in the future suddenly take on this bittersweet tinge. But it's, I feel like it's my job, particularly in relation to my daughter, to keep them joyful. That just reminds me of a, an incident in my life when my husband's son died. He left two small children. Uh, one was three years old, a daughter, and a son who was five. And they were with us right after the death. And we didn't want to put anything on them, anything sort of religious image on them. We were very careful about that. And we left them alone for just a few minutes. And we came back in the room. And Megan had asked a question at that point. She said, well, what am I going to do now for my birthday? And I bring this up because of your daughter and, and all the anniversaries and the marriage and the grandchildren and all of that, that, that Larry Lawrence won't be there for. And um, they had worked it out, and her brother said to her, oh, Megan, don't worry about it. Now Daddy's an angel, and he can be any place he wants. And they worked that out. She, she figured out the most important thing was her anniversary of her birth date. And it, they had worked out some way of holding that. I was so impressed. That is impressive. The, the, the whole psyche, our, our psyche is helpful. <laughs> our emotional body is helpful at different times. Did you find that for yourself? I, I did in spurts. And you try to hang on to those moments, I think, where you're feeling like, of course, this person is still here. And I am, as you indicated, not a religious person. I have no particular faith, but I did come to feel after this experience something about energy and the persistence of energy. I don't know how you can live through something and not start to think about those kinds of things because it feels so incredibly palpable. It feels tangible. Um, but yes, I mean, one of the first things my daughter said after her father died within days was, who's going to walk me down the aisle? Because we put such enormous stock in these momentous moments. And that's, that's part of the reason why I came up with a device in the book that I like to call snapshots, which are basically flashbacks to moments in my husband's life that I think speak to a life well-lived, that are really moments of human connection. And I believe that those are the little tiny 
snapshot moments that you take and throw in a shoebox. They're not the special posed portraits that you put on a silver frame on your mantelpiece. They're these little tiny moments. And so we fixate at those moments when we lose someone on the big moments. And of course they're important. But the moments that made the person's life are these little tiny moments of human connection, I think. So I did this, uh, these flashbacks that I punctuate the chronology of the book with. So with, at the end of each chapter, you have a little snapshot of a life well-lived, really, or a moment that brings us to laughter or tears or, or just really connects us with Lawrence himself. Yes, and I think that, and, and people have told me this, I think we all want to preserve the person, as it were, as the vital person they were. So I also wanted to recapture that. I didn't want him just to be a dying presence in this book because that has absolutely nothing to do with who he was throughout his life. And I think it also, I'm, I'm told that we all kind of mirror that process in the grieving process, that you're trying desperately hard to be in the present, but you have these flashbacks or even flash forwards to who's going to walk me down the aisle. So I think the grieving process has a lot to do with past, present, and future being all mushed up at once. How does writing help you to preserve that? You say you don't put it on the mantelpiece and frame it, but writing seems to be a way for you. Well, it is for me. That's, that's what I have always done to make an experience real, is to put it into words. That's what makes an experience real for me. That's just who I am. But I would say with After Image, what I found was that grieving was a very fracturing experience, almost schizophrenic. By that I mean I would be sitting across the dinner table from a friend, but I was really in the business of grieving. Or I would be at the theater, but I was really in the business of grieving. So it almost becomes like constantly doing two things at once, like patting your head and rubbing your stomach. And it's exhausting. It's the most exhausting thing I've ever done. So when I sat down to work on this book, even though I was in a horribly sad place, I was in one place, body, mind, and soul. It wasn't this push-pull of trying to look like a high-functioning human being, but really being in the process of doing something else. So that's one of the things that this book really did for me. I would not, people always ask me if it was cathartic, which is a word that I would not use to describe it, because to me, that connotes some kind of purging and getting rid of. You never get rid of this kind of grief. But it helped me to process it. It helped me to make it real. It's kind of paradoxical. By putting it into words, it made something so unreal real. And yet it also made it a narrative that was outside of me. It, it was still, of course, my story. But now at least it exists for me as something between covers. So you know? are you saying like then you can be an observer to it? In some way? In some way. It made it, it made it a story. It made it a story, which to me made it finite. I think it was something I needed to do just personally so that I wouldn't feel that it was going to define the whole rest of my life. It made it finite. I see. And going, going back to Larry's illness, and it was your daughter who insisted at the very, towards the very end that he come home to die. Can you describe that? She did. Um, she was remarkable. He was dying in the hospital, and clearly in her mind she had thought about this day coming for a couple of months, and this was not how she was going to let it play out. So she wanted to bring him home, and I said, you know, he, he's, he's out of it, he's in pain, he won't know the difference. I was, you know, in, on some other planet altogether. 
And she insisted, and I said, okay, well, we'll try, but if it starts to go poorly or it seems like it's agitating to him in any way, we'll abort, you know? And no, we brought him home, and it was, I will be grateful to her for that forever. It's where we all needed him to be. I, I, I really related to the, the scene because I brought my own mother home to die, and so I, I, I related to the scene that... Everything is kind of slow motion when you talk to the doctors and you decide that this is going to happen. And then all of a sudden, it like all speeds up. They, they take him out of the room and then suddenly everything speeds up. Yes, that's you- exactly right. And, and I had never ridden in an ambulance before and suddenly you're doing all these strange things and it feels a little bit like a movie. And, you know, you're sort of watching yourself from a distant corner of the room and yet you know that it's the most present you're ever going to be for anything that happens in your life. It's, it's, again, this kind of schizophrenic experience of the moment. Exactly, exactly. And um, when in the moment of death, so often our loved ones pass on when we're not there. We're just like a moment. We, we walk out of the room to go to the restroom or, or take a phone call or whatever it is. And that's that moment. Was that true that, for you? That was exactly true with us. And you do hear those stories always and kind of think maybe they're apocryphal, but it certainly seemed to be the case in, in our family. Um, yes, I literally left the room to, to go to the bathroom. You're exactly right. And the only reason I couldn't use the, the bathroom in my bedroom was because the hospice nurse was in the corner. And um, my daughter was lying on our bed, and she sort of started to drift off to sleep for the first time in 48 hours. And and uh, the nurse called me in. So there seems to be some validity to that. I think, I don't know, we, who knows? We have to assume maybe they need that little bit of, uh, we all need that little bit of detachment before we can do that. I guess that's the way I rationalize it, is that some, some relationships are so close, it's so hard to let go, and it needs that moment of absence well, I, the, the metaphor I use, or, or the analogy I should say, in the book was I remembered at that moment when my husband cut the umbilical cord when our daughter was born, him saying, God, this is really tough. This is harder than I thought. That fiber is really strong. And I thought, well, those are the fibers that, that bind us, and they're really strong, and you have to make it a little easier to cut, I guess. You also use uh, a metaphor of of the, the pain and talking about the pain that Lawrence had and comparing it to childbirth and that pain. And it was so poignant to me when you finished that metaphor, you said, but there was a baby at the end of my pain. And that's that just terrible grief that there was no nothingness. baby. Nothingness. There's just nothingness. It's, it's, it's not right that there should be pain like that for such wonderful, sweet people. There's something, there's a design flaw. A design flaw, yes. And, and in that pain, um, there's also some anger that, that comes up because Lawrence was in so much pain that um, in, with his morphine drip and stuff, that he would not be there. He would and not I, be- I continue to have guilt about that because I was trying to get him to use less drugs, and that was selfish on my part because it was too scary for me, for him to be that gone, like a junkie almost, you know, for him not to, to be physically there but so not there was so frightening to me, and I think now in hindsight it was sort of a, 
coming attraction of what I guess I knew deep in my heart was lying ahead of this, of his not being there. And it was so scary to me that I engaged him in this absolutely lunatic negotiation all the time. We'll talk more about that in just one moment. I'm here with Carla Malden. She's the author of After Image, a broken-hearted memoir of a charmed life. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Carla Malden. She's the author of After Image, a broken-hearted memoir of a charmed life. And if you'd like to check out her news, you can go to her website, CarlaMalden.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. Carla, we're talking about anger, and we're talking about being afraid, like when, when Lawrence was towards the end and he was under morphine and it was so scary for him to not be present for you. Can you say more about yes, that? Yes, it was so scary for me that as I was saying, I was constantly negotiating with him, can you wait five minutes, can you wait ten minutes to take the next hit? We, we really, when I think about it in hindsight, we were really doing hospice on our own at home. We had controlled substance drugs in our refrigerator, he was hooked up to all kinds of things, but I didn't want the personnel. We were really doing it ourselves. And so I engaged in this ridiculous negotiation about trying to buy a couple of minutes of, of normalcy, even though that meant excruciating pain for him. And I have enormous guilt about that. It was very selfish on my part. Um, so tell us how you're coping with that guilt. I, you don't. It, it Sometimes it rears its ugly head, and, and I, I rationalize it. I don't cope with it. I rationalize it. I say to myself... That's what he understood. He knew me. Nobody knew me better. He he got the he he got it. So that's that's what you do. You rationalize. You rationalize it. And I'm I'm also thinking of a part in the book where where Lawrence said to you, um, "I guess we've just been unlucky." And uh, I would love for you to read this part, if you would. Yes, he, he said that to me. He was in the hospital, and he said that one night just as I was leaving for home. It must have been about midnight. And I got home, and I called him on the phone, and I said to him, I've had an epiphany, I told him. You're so wrong. We've been the luckiest people. How many people find someone to spend their life with when they're so young and then get to do it, actually get to spend their whole lives together? I listed all the people we know who are still looking for someone or getting divorced, or sharing stale air with a spouse. Don't ever think that again, I made him promise. You're right. Promise, promise me you won't ever think that again. I promise, he said. We're the luckiest people in the whole world. I didn't know that I would cling to that moment for the rest of my life, and I certainly didn't know that the rest of my life would begin so soon. So that must be a comfort when you start to feel the guilt to remember that moment. Does that help? It does help. It does help. And then I have to do 
what I was just describing in terms of how I structured the book, I have to think about the whole life before that last year, which obviously outweighs it by a factor of a million. And he said towards the end, he, he, he really forgave you. I mean, he, didn't he, you, you would say, I'm so sorry. And he said, I know, it's, it's okay, he, it's okay. He, he was an amazingly sweet human being. <laughs> um, yes, yes. I mean, that was when he was really under a lot of drugs and who knows what he heard or said, but I cling to that. He, he understood. I know he understood. I do know that. I feel he did. Thank you, Justine. I, I feel he did, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, shopping therapy. Let's talk oh, yes. about I love that part, shopping therapy. It's become a bit of an issue. <laughs> oh, dear, okay, let's, let's talk about that. Yes, I, um, we started sort of throwing weird things against the wall to see what would stick, as most cancer patients do, I think, and... While, of course, doing every single thing the doctors said, the Western medicine people said, but we started doing these other strange things. And along the line, someone suggested a rolfing technique. So I dropped Lawrence off at this house and was not far from shopping Mecca Beverly Hills. And I hadn't been out of the house for a very long time, it felt like, at that point. And yes, lo and behold, the sun was shining and the world was turning. And... Stuart Weitzman's shoes were there. So <laughs> what more could a person want from life? And I got, I have to say, I don't think of myself as an addictive personality particularly, but I really got a kind of rush from the interaction of the purchase. And it was like, if I buy these shoes, the life will come where I need them. You know, it, was, it had a very kind of magical thinking element to it. And just the transaction of, if I give them my credit card, they will give me the shoes. It's so simple because obviously it doesn't take a psychologist to figure this out. The rest of my life was spinning so far out of control. I had no control over anything. Nowhere else in my universe could I say, if I give you this, you'll give me back a healthy husband, <laughs> you know? Right. So I, I went shopping. I did. You, in fact, you say something about you, you used to judge the 9-11 widows when it was reported some of them were doing shopping, you don't feel that way anymore. I, I understand it completely. Right. I understand it completely. Right. If I get this jacket... It's about power and control. It's about taking some control back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you and Cammy then, after, afterwards, you, you took a trip. You we did. About three months after Lawrence died, she and I went to Paris and London. And as I mentioned in the book... We're from Los Angeles. That's a car town. And I think, aside from wanting to get out of Dodge, the, the ability to walk the streets and just move through space was enormously helpful to us. Just to move your body was very, very helpful to us. I would think so. I would think so. And then you had this wild moment in the hotel when Bob Dylan walked through the lobby. So we to, we just, did, which I have to preface by explaining... Um, a couple of things. Primarily, my daughter, who is a filmmaker, had cut a video for us to screen at the memorial um, about her daddy, of course. And the song that she did it to was a very favorite of his, which is My Back Pages. She used the Birds version, but it's, of course it's a Bob Dylan written song. And um, we were in the hotel in Paris, and we looked up in the lobby and saw Bob Dylan crossing the lobby. And it's at that moment in time, three months after he had, Lawrence had died, where you're really looking for signs. We all do that, I've discovered. 
you are looking for signs, and that was one for us. And you're happy to take it. Even if it means you're losing your mind a little bit, you're happy to take the sign. But have there been signs? Have there been... I mean, I believe in signs. I think... I do. I, I, I believe... I don't know where they come from. I, I love to believe that it is the person from beyond getting in touch, and I see nothing wrong with believing that. It's not my personal temperamental bent to believe that way, but I enjoy the moment when they happen and, and experience it as yeah. though it is that. Some people talk about seeing a dime on the ground or a penny on the ground and that that's a sign. I know for me, when my mother died, I didn't know that she had actually passed. I was just with her just a couple of hours before and I was laying down in my bed and I became filled with this energy that I can only describe as pure love. It just it was like a psychedelic experience. It was an out-of-body experience. It was my whole body just vibrated with this extraordinary sense of well-being that I can only describe as love. And then the telephone rang and my aunt called and she said, Mother just passed. I believe that entirely. As I said, I mean... In terms of, of quantum physics, energy has to go somewhere. I, I believe that. It, it does. You, that's right. Well, I'll, I'll go you one more, go, one more comical. Let's, I'll, right, I'll go okay. you one more comical, right. which is that both my daughter and I have had certain tastes, actual t- eating tastes change since Lawrence has been gone. Things that we didn't used to like that he loved, we both like now. So I don't know. <laughs> but that's kind of fun. <laughs> so you get to embody the taste for him. Uh, exactly. He's not embodied. Exactly. Oh, that's great. That's great. So um, you, he, when uh, you talk about how rage is inevitable, we in many caregiver books talk about this, how we project it on the person, and you talk about that, you are so um, honest, you know, you go deep in your gut and you share so many wonderful funny moments and comical moments and deep moments and scary moments and then moments that we want to judge ourselves for, but you talk about the rage that, that you would turn on Lawrence. And I remember one particular phrase where you, you were asking him, well, now I'm going to paraphrase it. You say, well, if you just moved your body differently, you would probably feel better. Maybe he was shuffling along. I don't know what That's it was. That's exactly saying. right. I remember that moment very vividly. It was the middle of the night. He, he got up out of bed, and he just his whole physiognomy was something different. It, he just was no longer himself. And it was, here again, it's all fear-based. All of these crazy reactions, I believe, are fear-based. And it was so terrifying to me to see him like that suddenly to be so to look old is what it boils down to um that i said just don't basically just don't do that is what it boils down to like as if he had any control over it and so you say it out loud and then you go what's wrong with me (laughs) i am insane i am insane i am insane well you are in full insane mode at that point i was anyway yeah yeah so in uh, you also went to a therapist with Lawrence, which um, is very unlike me. <laughs> <laughs> you said what? What did you use the phrase? I'm, I'm, I'm therapy averse. <laughs> averse, adverse. Yeah, right. Okay. So how was that? It was helpful to us. I think it was helpful to us. We went in all permutations, the three of us, 
alone together, groups of twos. That's your it, daughter. Our daughter included, yeah. yes. Um, it, was, it was helpful. It was helpful. Um, I was, it didn't really help me very much afterwards, but I felt that it was helpful because I wanted him to be able to have somebody to talk to. Right, and he, you, you found a note of his where he had done an exercise at one point from the, the yes, assigned had, by the therapist. She had given him homework, as it were, to write down five things he was grateful for and talk about a sign. I found this in his desk after he died, and um, you know, one of them was me, one of them was our daughter. It put really beautifully and poetically, and... Music was one, and then the last one was, I'm grateful for this green earth. I know where heaven is. So beautiful. And what a beautiful item to run across when you're right in the middle of deep, deep grief to have that piece of paper you didn't even know was there. Didn't know was there, and it was so him. Yeah, yeah. That heaven was right here. Yeah, that's beautiful, and 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 also the I I laughed at the rubber band therapy. Oh yes, I've I've used that. I Have used you? that years ago for quitting smoking. It it worked really well. It was great. Well, this therapist gave me a rubber band to put around my wrist and to snap whenever I was having one of my obsessive thoughts, of which I had many that looped in my brain, um, and to think the inverse. Of the thought to make it tr- to the snapping of the rubber band was supposed to trigger the inverse of the thought. Didn't work so well for me, but but I tried. I, I really tried, and I, I got to where when I'm thinking, you know, this isn't going so well that I could at least for a few moments flip that around to we're going to do something about it. At least I, I couldn't say this is. I could never make myself say this is going to turn out all right. It just felt too doomed at that point. But I could say. We're going to be proactive. We're going to continue to be proactive. At least it helped you to catch your thought. Exactly. Exactly. That's well put. Yeah. I'm here with Carla Malden. She's the author of After Image, a broken-hearted memoir of a charmed life. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Carla Malden. She's the author of After Image, a broken-hearted memoir of a charmed life. Carla, let's talk about time healing. Does time heal the grief? I don't believe it does. I believe time serves other functions, but I don't think it heals. I think it teaches us a couple of things. It teaches us 
that we can survive. Each day that passes sort of encrusts a, a patina of survival around our hearts and we realize that we can keep going. So it, just by virtue of passing, it teaches us that. And I think that it teaches us that we will evolve and that there's still the unexpected out there. And I know that when Lawrence was first diagnosed, I became a different person. Hearing, hearing a doctor give you bad news changes you on a cellular level. And then what time can do in, a, in the inverse, in the good way, is teach you that the unexpected can also be joy. And whoever would believe that? When you're in the pit of despair, you don't believe it's possible. But that's what time teaches you, is the little, there are little joys lying ahead, and then shockingly, there may even be big joys lying ahead. And, part of, and then the more you get into changing that habit, we talked about habits before, the more it becomes a habit to kind of embrace possibility, then you begin to be able to build your own joy. Mm-hmm. Well, we mentioned in the very beginning, you have been a non-religious person. Has this changed your spiritual thought in any way? It hasn't, Justine. I have to say that it hasn't. Um, it has confirmed what I basically have always believed, which is in the power of love. We talked about the sort of quantum physics energy persisting after someone goes. I think that another name for that is love. I think that's what connects us. That's what works for me. Um, so I wouldn't say it has made me change my views. It maybe confirm my views that that's what you leave behind is a legacy of love. There is a very funny part of the book um, after Lawrence has passed and you're going through some of his things and there, there are boxes and boxes of duplicates of his, some of his work, his screen work yes, and stuff. Yes, he was a filmmaker and he also specialized in film graphics and he had a whole career as a, as a film graphic artist. So we had boxes upon boxes in, in closet after closet of duplicates of his work, sample reels and, and various um, film segments. So I spent one night, several months after he died with a friend, going through them all, making sure we kept at least one copy of every single thing, obviously, and boxing up the rest. I was just manic about it. I was on a rampage. I don't know why. And we piled them into boxes, and then continuing in this manic phase, I had to get them out of the house. I was possessed. So we threw them in the back of the car, and it was a Monday night, which happens to be trash night in my neighborhood, and my daughter and I drove around the neighborhood looking for trash cans that had enough empty space to put maybe one of them in, because there were so many, we clearly couldn't put them in one place. So yes, it was like a crazy scene from a movie, but you do these crazy things, and you give in to the impulse, and it, for some weird reason, seems to be making perfect sense in the moment. But, you know, in some ways it does, because... In some way, the energy is right in that moment, and you have to move on it. Well, you're so adrenalized. Talk about energy. I mean, we had so much adrenaline going. I, I use the phrase in the book that we bounced around the house like pinballs for, for a couple of months after, and just bouncing off the walls. You're so adrenalized. I think it's partly because what has happened is so unreal, and you're trying to make up for the loss in some physical way, and it, it's partly just to remind yourself that you're still alive, that you can that you move, that you can have energy, that you can move through space. Well, that you're still alive, that reminds me of survivor's guilt. Have, 
Can you say anything about that? Have oh, you? Oh, it's gone huge. Through- <laughs> <laughs> it's huge. He he. Um, in my particular case, I I can say without being self-effacing or anything, that he was the sweeter person of the two of us. <laughs> he was. Everybody loved him. He was a remarkably sweet, gentle, patient, kind, funny person. And um, I have learned to be a better person in many ways, a little more patience, a little less sweating the small stuff, a little less anxious and judgmental and demanding through this experience. And um, I have survivor's guilt that he didn't get to get that better part of me. Mm-hmm. And another part about the... The, when you talked about getting rid of his duplicates of his filmmaking career, uh, you talk about the answering machine. I mean, that's a big one for a lot of people. Well, these days, it's not just the answering machine. Yes, I had to take his name off our answering machine, and I had to get rid of his cell phone, and we recorded his outgoing message and all of those things. But in this day and age, we leave so many technological echoes behind I, to this day, I will. We have, he and I shared an email address because I hardly ever used email in those days. Um, and to this day, I will log into our email, and things will come up. You know, Amazon recommendations for Lawrence Starkman, or you know, all these strange things. We leave these bizarre technological echoes behind now. Right. Exactly. And it took you a, a while to to start to to release the answering machine where yes. he would. Answer and that that takes me to um, friends and people who know you and love you and and um, what is it that we can say to one another? Um, it it seems like there's not much. You know, but people ask me that, and I've thought long and hard about it, Justine. And I think the best answer I can offer is to not act like it didn't happen. And to fold the person's name and memories that you have into your conversation with the bereaved person as often and as much as possible. The, I took enormous comfort in knowing that other people were missing him too. And little tiny memories they might share. You know, or, oh, I, I was on such and, at such and such a restaurant the other day and I thought of Lawrence because wouldn't he have loved the hamburger? Whatever. Just that he infused other people's lives too was the, the really the only helpful thing to me. And, and letters, to put it in writing for me, was fantastic. I kept a box of all the letters, and I happened to read them on the anniversary of his death every year. Um, but that, I think, just letting people know how much he meant to you and not skirting it at all. I think to say, you know, obviously people say, don't say, I know how you must be feeling. That, that didn't bother me. I know everybody was well-meaning. They could say whatever they wanted. But the things that really touched me were when they said how much he meant to them, too. Right, exactly. And, um, and I think you mentioned also in your book about the importance of listening, of being heard, listened to, listened into. Yes. I mean, I, I really, we've talked so much about how he and I were interconnected in so many facets of our lives. And I have to say that in many ways he was one-stop shopping for me in terms of support and love and everything. And I, one, of, one of the silver linings, one of the things that time since he's been gone has taught me is really the value of friendship and of learning how to go to other people and say, I need help. Oh, that's from, a big one. From things to, yeah. I can't change this high light bulb in my house, to, 
I am having a really bad day. I need help. I never would have thought I'd be able to do that. And that's something I've had to learn to do. I think that's a big one in our culture. We're so independent and to say, I, I need some help. That's I'm struggling right now. Yeah, yeah, that's a big one. It is, it is. And uh, now it's been, at this point, over five years since Lawrence's death. And um, you told me before the interview that you've just managed to start to redo his work study yes, or something? Yes, he had a home office, and I hadn't touched it in these five and a half years. And I wasn't sure I really ever was going to, but for various reasons... Um, I, I decided I was going to redo the room. And he had a bulletin board over his desk with various things in it that I actually describe as one of the snapshots, the last snapshot in the book I talk about sitting in his office, and it's kind of a, a tour of the bulletin board. And what I did was I took a, a snapshot of the bulletin board so that I would have a picture of it as it always was, and then I took off all the contents and put them in a scrapbook. And it feels really good. There's a sense of accomplishment about it. And you've preserved it in a way. Yes, still, absolutely. But then you've also moved on. I mean, how does that feel? I was really afraid of how it was going to feel to step into that room and have it look different. And it feels really good. I'm here to report that it feels really good. It was like the time had come. So the grief isn't gone, but there is a change. But there's change. Exactly. Things, things evolve and things morph but it doesn't mean he's not still there. Right. And it doesn't mean that he won't always be there. Right, exactly. So anything that you want to share in, these last, in this last minute that you'd like to share? I just think that um, what I would like people to know about this book is that it's not a self-help book. And I'm told by various readers that they find inspiration there and that warms my heart more than I can say. I find it very gratifying, but even that was not my intention. My intention was just to tell my personal story in the most honest way I possibly could. When you lose someone, well-meaning friends give you so many books, and there really weren't any out there that spoke to me and my stage of life as a widow. I was a young widow, and I would look in the mirror and think, how can that person be a widow? It doesn't compute. I'm you know, completely actively engaged in life with a huge future, we hope, ahead of me. And that you know, those, those books were really for a different generation. This, the tagline I like to say is, this is not your mother's widowhood. And so I just told the story of my experience as honestly as I could. And I've been, as I said, so heartwarmed to discover that there seem to be so many points of emotional intersection with other people and their stories. And I think you've told that story very well. Thank you. I've been here with Carla Malden. She's the author of After Image, a broken-hearted memoir of a charmed life. And if you'd like to check out her website, it's carlamalden.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio and Media in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Please visit us at newdimensions.org, where you can find nearly a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our archive and many other resources. That's newdimensions.org. Our executive producer is Michael Toms. 
Our managing producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. Since 1973, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge of culture, the arts, science, health, psychology, spirituality, and a host of other fields. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. This is program number 3449. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard and thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, to become a member of Friends of New Dimensions, or to purchase downloadable copies of this and many other New Dimensions programs, visit our website, newdimensions.org. Or you can reach us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Join us next time as we explore new dimensions.